0: Hello, and welcome to our um, lecture for Philosophy 2500, Inter-to-Feminist Philosophy. This is our first lecture for week five on Nora Berenstain's article, Epistemic Exploitation. So, Nora Berenstain is an associate professor of philosophy, core faculty in women's gender and sexuality studies, and co-director of the intersectionality community of scholars at the University of Tennessee. Her work spans social and political philosophy, metaphysics of science, and feminist epistemology. Dr. Berenstain received her PhD in philosophy from the University of Texas, where her graduate work focused on the metaphysics of structures and the relationship between mathematics and the empirical world. Well, that sounds very cool. Her current work, and complicated, her current work explores the modal nature of interlocking systems of oppression. Dr. Berenstein also studies tools of epistemic oppression, such as structural gaslighting and epistemic exploitation, and interrogates the structural complicities of epistemologies with non-accidental epistemic violence. And today, the paper that we're going to be discussing of hers is called Epistemic Exploitation from 2016. So let's dive right in. The paper starts with a great question. What is epistemic exploitation? And Berenstain um, gives us a good description of epistemic exploitation at the beginning. So she says a number of things about it. It occurs when privileged persons compel marginalized persons to produce an education or explanation about the nature of the oppression they face. So this is kind of the core definition of epistemic exploitation. And she goes on to say that it's a variety of epistemic oppression. Um, It involves unrecognized, uncompensated, emotionally taxing, and coerced epistemic labor. It maintains structures of oppression by centering the needs and desires of dominant groups and exploiting the emotional and cognitive labor of members of marginalized groups and um, another thing that berenstain says about epistemic exploitation is that it can masquerade as a necessary and even epistemically virtuous form of intellectual engagement and it's often treated as an indispensable method of attaining knowledge And I think we should keep this in mind as we go through the rest of the paper, this uh, last point in particular about the way these conversations can masquerade as necessary and even epistemically virtuous. So we have an idea now of what epistemic exploitation is. It's when um, people in dominant positions compel people in marginalized position to explain something that's tied in with their oppression or educate someone who's not oppressed about the oppression that they face so the next section is well what's exploitative about this epistemic exploitation what makes this exploitation and berenstein points to a number of features of this kind of epistemic labor that she argues makes it uh exploitative so one is that it's unpaid and on top of being unpaid it also has a cost what berenstain calls an opportunity cost so because you're putting your energy and your resources and your thought into answering these questions then this energy is diverted from other things other endeavors and other thinking you could be doing um so that's one thing that makes this exploitative The other thing that makes this exploitative is what's called the double bind, which is a great feminist concept and and a concept that is um, used other places and for uh, other examples. But we'll talk more about this um, idea of the double bind in Berenstain's work a little bit later. But in this section, she, she's describing this double bind as being um, one of the things that makes this kind of epistemic labor exploitative. And a double bind um, is basically like encapsulating the expression damned if you do, damned if you don't. So we'll give some more examples. But in this case, um, what Berenstein's talking about is the way that this this um, dem- these questions, these type of... Um, Questions or uh, exchanges or conversations put the marginalized knower, the marginalized epistemic agent, into this position where they don't really have a choice, and there's negative consequences. There are negative costs associated with taking either road. And then the last, um, the last point that Berenstein makes about why this kind of epistemic labor is exploitative is the default skeptical response and this this idea of a default skeptical response and some of um, Baronstein's reasons for arguing against this default skeptical response is also covered a little bit later in this paper so let's talk about the first one unpaid labor and opportunity costs So Bernstein writes that epistemic exploitation levies a tax in years unlived because the labor it requires is often the source of significant negative emotion that it takes labor to dispel itself. And if anyone's had an experience where they have to have like some kind of awkward conversation, maybe you have to tell a stranger not to do something, you or maybe other kinds of conversations that are uncomfortable or very personal, you might, might know that that w- the way that it feels, the way that you have a rush of adrenaline. You might get kind of shaky or um, hot. And, um, you know, the these conversations are not just emotionally neutral, right? These conversations can come with a lot of, emotion that then um, can be exhausting, can be absolutely draining. So this kind of epistemic labor can have um, have physical, biological impacts and costs. Uh, It could have job costs. So Berenstein talks about how in academia, lots of members of marginalized groups are asked to serve on more committees, attend more meetings. Um, mentor underrepresented students more uh, which is an idea that we've seen in other readings that there's like additional labor that's expected of marginalized um, people in in academia so you have these it's you have this unpaid work it's costly physically and emotionally psychologically draining exhausting then you also have these these uh, opportunity costs—you spending all this time doing this thing, trying to, you know, re- rebut and answer these questions about related to your um, your oppression to the um, the someone in a dom- dominant position—and then finally, Berenstein says, and after all that, after you've done that extra work, after you've exhausted yourself, after you've given up doing something else in order to do this epistemic work then frequently this, whatever you say, is then dismissed by those who demand it. So you just do all this work, it seems, for nothing. And um, Berenstein says that this reveals an important function of epistemic exploitation, which is to keep the oppressed busy doing the oppressor's work, which is to learn about these things um, themselves. And we might say, okay, wait a minute. Bernstein, what about if this labor um, helps to make systemic change? And Bernstein's response is look, even if it did, which it doesn't seem like it does, there's still epistemic labor because there are all these other costs. So we might be tempted to say, Berenstein writes, that if the exchange is not that the exchange is not epistemically exploitative, if it amounts to something, right? If it well, if it comes to something, then it's not exploitative anymore. And she says, No, that's not true. Even if the marginalized um even if the labor that the marginalized provides inspires the privileges the privilege to do something the marginalized have still sacrificed their time, energy, and expertise in the service of the privileged. So we still have epistemic exploitation, even if it leads to positive change. And she writes, the privileged receive social recognition from their newfound knowledge and self-improvement in a way that's rarely given to marginalized persons who actually produce this knowledge. And I think this, I mean, this is a. a think, this is an interesting point that, you know, a I think white people get points for being not racist in a way that people of color don't get rec- don't get recognition for that, or you know, men get recognition and accolades for being not sexist um, in a way that women don't, and um, we can. I mean, it might be interesting to think about why, what's going on there, what's, uh, why is that the case? So maybe we can summarize this, this beginning by saying that epistemic exploitation bestows benefits on the privileged and the marginalized bear all of these costs. In the next section, section 3.2, the double bind, we talk a little bit more about what the double bind is. So the double bind, Berenstein says, is an important feature of epistemic exploitation. And how it works in epistemic exploitation is to make either choice. So there's this demand by someone in a dominant position to explain something or defend something or expose something or justify something. And the double bind is that the choice to respond or not, really, there's no good answer. You're it's there's costs, there're negative costs for you if you do answer, if you do take up this demand, this co- this call to defend something, and there are costs if you don't. So here we get the story of the white woman who touches Amina's hair while Amina is out with her white friend ben and amina is dismissive you know says like don't do that thank you and ben um ben's response is to say that amina was rude and to ask why amina was so rude so here we have the demand from ben who's in a dominant position in terms of race things and um, amina who's a marginalized in a marginalized position um, in terms of race and Ben is making this demand why did you do this thing that I'm saying is rude and Amina has to make this choice does she explain to Ben what was what was racist about that act or does she um, not explain and just say oh you know what I I wasn't rude I'm sorry I was rude let's just move on and the point here that Berenstain's making is that Both of these, both of these paths, Amina's, they're going to be cost to Amina. So we can imagine that Amina says, look, just forget about it. Then Berenstein says she's at risk um, for confirming to Ben the misogynoiristic controlling image of the angry black woman, right? Ben leaves sees his other white friend later and is like, oh, you will you know, Amina was just in such a mood today, you know, classic Amina. Or Amina has to engage in this coerced labor of explaining why the white woman's actions were racist and having to justify her own response. And the experience of the conversation is going to be so different for Amina and Ben, right? For Ben, this isn't, this isn't going to be personal. For Amina, this is likely gonna be tied up with um, you know, a lifetime of experiencing racism and it's just a much much more personal conversation to have. So as Berenstein writes, she says providing educational labor to one's oppressors is not only pointless, because lots of times as she notes, the it's dismissed or it's it's um met with, the, with skepticism, with default skepticism. So it's not only pointless, but it can even be self-destructive when it leaves the laborer, Amina, for example, worse off and more vulnerable than before. And we can think about some other examples of um, double binds. So we might think about, you know, Amy Schumer has a great skit about Madonna or the Whore. So in in the skit, Amy Schumer is just reacting to this expectation that women are both, um, you know, kind of these virginal beings in terms of their sexuality, right? There's this, they're the Madonna, they're untouched and unsoiled and virginal, and then this expectation of women... As being very um, sexual and you know adventurous and wild in the bedroom, like you know the lady in the street, but a freak in the bed, and just this this double bind, right? If you have if you have if you're too sexually active, you're you they're horrible labels like you know whore or slut. If you're not sexually active enough, then you're called other demeaning things like prude and shrew and. So this is another example of the double bind. Either choice leads to either choice ends in some kind of stereotype, in some kind of sexist stereotype, or in this case, some some either a racist stereotype is confirmed. Um, Femina doesn't say anything, or she she's forced to do this labor of explaining to Ben what happened. And then Berenstein goes on to say more about this default skeptical responses that this kind of epistemic labor often leads to or results in. And she says, look, there's different kinds of skepticism that we might find in response to this kind of epistemic labor. One is that the marginalized person's experience really happened but not the way they described right it was well yeah sure she tried to touch your hair but it was not not what you meant it was clear that she was trying to be nice she didn't that white woman didn't look like a racist the skepticism can also be about um the suggestion that this experience fa- falls into a a larger pattern of oppression rather than being a sim- simply an isolated event so you know, oh yeah she tried to touch your hair she shouldn't do that but it has nothing to do with racism it's just a one-time weird thing there might be skepticism about the scope or even the existence of an interlocking um, oppressive system so you know Ben might say oh well Amina it's not about you being a woman or it's you know not about you being black it's only about you being a woman or and and here Berenstein goes on to say something that I, I, I just love this point. I think this is a really brilliant point. And um, I think this would be a good one for, to have in your back pocket for when these, these uh, conversations come up about um, the part of the skeptical response involves an assumption that both people have are in the same epistemic position. So this goes back to some of the things we were talking about in the last lectures about being differently situated epistemically. So Berenstein argues that when, when the person in power has this response skeptically, it kind of assumes that they are epistemic peers, that they're in the same position to know about what they're what they're talking about. So, if we think about the Amina Ben case, if if Amina were to explain and Ben was and Ben responded with um, skepticism, there's an assumption underlying that skepticism that Ben and Amina are in are equally positioned as epistemic agents, as knowers, to know about this thing. In this case. Racism against black women, and and Berenstein's point is obviously Ben is not in the same position to know about these things about the very thing that he's challenging Amina on, and Berenstein says even more than that, in the context where the privileged person has framed her opinion and the marginalized person's evaluation as being equally credible. The marginalized person bears a significant risk by failing to respond, and why? Why does? Why is there this substantive risk to the marginalized person for failing to respond? And this is, you know, also what pushes this. This is part of the double double bind, because Berenstein says the default skepticism response is this. Uh, it's a response that's masquerading as substantive in in the argument, so it seems like it's a substantive challenge as opposed to a misunderstanding. So, if there was a misunderstanding, Berenstein argues, then the pressure would be on the person who misunderstood to go understand. But with a substantive response, so this is like a uh, so. What Bernstein is saying is that the default skepticism is like a rebuttal to Amina. So if Ben says, no, I don't think it was like that, that's that's not a misunderstanding, but a substantive um, rebuttal or argument against. It comes across as an argument against what Amina says. And where there's an argument against, then um, if Amina doesn't respond, the objection appears to be a credible one without response. So it weakens Amina's, makes Amina's reaction now um, wrong in a way. And being seen as losing the debate further, Berenstein argues, can lead to a loss of credibility for the marginalized person who is likely already suffering from a credibility deficit Because of these, because of um, the way we see different people as being knowers or not. So here you have Amina who, if she doesn't respond, then it's going to seem like Ben's challenge that she was overreacting um, was true. And she loses credibility. She affirms this stereotype. Um, and it seems like makes her seem like she was wrong even if what is going on is just not wanting to explain to to white ben um you know her lifetime experience of dealing with racism so default skepticism is a response to this labor produced under epistemic exploitation and a demand for even more labor i don't think so so now you have to convince me again, right? It's like just saying back, no, I'm not convinced, Amina. I don't think so. Berenstein also points out two other harms um, that come from default skepticism. So the first one is gaslighting, which has been a pretty uh, popular term in the last little while. So gaslighting is um, when you undermine a person's confidence in their grasp on reality which can lead to an overall sense of self, self-doubt and a lack of trust in one's perceptions. So you can think about historic examples of gaslighting when women would explain like, you know, an experience they were having, like feeling sick in some way. And you know the doctor says, "Oh, that's because uh, you have a uterus and you're menstruating. And everyone knows that menstruating uter- uteri, create this psych- these psychosomatic experiences of pain. So it's all in your head and just go home and, you know, die quietly. So that, that's an example of gaslighting. So where your confidence in your own grasp of reality is undermined and can lead to, you know, not not trusting your own experiences and perceptions. And the other one is called testimonial smothering. And that's where... The speaker starts to self-silence themselves, so they um, they stop participating in risky conversations because they know that whatever they say isn't going to be in- the person's not going to incorporate it into their views. They're not going to take them seriously. It's just going to be dismissed or met with this skepticism. So what's the point of doing all this work? I'm just going to self-silence. I'm just going to you know stop talking. So, speaking of uh, stopping to talk, this let's end this lecture here, and we'll pick up the last couple of sections in lecture number two. See you there. Welcome to part two of our lecture on Nora Berenstain's article, Epistemic Exploitation. And um, so we are at the section num- titled uh, number four, Epistemic Exploitation and Epistemic Justice, Injustice, sorry. So we were just talking about the harms of default skepticism. And now we're going to explore how the phenomenon of epistemic exploitation relates to some epistemic harms that Miranda Fricker identified in her 2017 work. So two in particular, one is testimonial injustice and the other one is one that we've already talked about um, in last week's lecture hermeneutical injustice so first let's talk about testimonial injustice so testimonial injustice is when a speaker receives or an epistemic agent receives less credibility is given less credibility than they're due because of uh, negative identity prejudices so maybe you have this horrible idea that white people are always liars and so, anytime you have a you hear a white person say something, you just um, you dismiss it because you have this prejudice that white people are liars. So this is this is um, how testimonial injustice works, although different preju- based on different prejudices, right? So Berenstein gives us the story of Dean and Summer. So they're graduate students, and Summer tells Dean that she thinks there's. Sexism and the way fellowships are given out. And Summer explains this. And Dean's response is to say, is to be skeptical. And um, what this means is he asks Summer to explain to him, to give him more evidence, to explain more. So he, his default skepticism demands further epistemic labor. He epistemic, exploits summer by demanding that she educate him in the first place about an aspect of oppression that she experiences dean gaslights summer by telling her that she inaccurately interpreted her own experiences of harassment and he perpetuates testimonial injustice by subjecting her to the negative stereotype of the bitter woman crying sexism so remember one of his explanations for his explanations for why the fellowships were only given out to men was because they were more deserving and summer is just a you know a bitter a classic bitter woman who is just always crying sexism so here we have in this in the summer and dean example we have a really good concise example of all these kind of different uh, epistemic uh, injustices that that Bernstein is talking about, about epistemic exploitation, about the harms of default skepticism, about how this leads to how this is a type of gaslighting and how this can involve testimonial injustice. And we have this point being made again of about epistemic peers, which um, I think is such a good point that, you know, when we're having these conversations about... Um, about different types of oppression that we're not we're not all epi- we're not situated epistemically in in the same ways always and I think that's a good thing to keep in mind right that some some people are going to be experts on these things and other people aren't and that um, that should be I mean if we're good kind of scientists or good thinkers are good philosophers I don't know why I went to scientists first good thinkers philosophers then these then experience should inform how we evaluate um, what people are saying right we're we're not in the same epistemic positions and Berenstein points out that you know this is actually not we're not good thinkers and that people are actually more likely Privileged people are more likely to believe claims about privilege and oppression when they come from other people who share their privilege and actually not from people who actually experience those systems of oppression. And in a little footnote, footnote 18, uh, Bernstein points out that privileged subjects frequently develop an overinflated sense of entitlement and epistemic arrogance that prevents them both from achieving self knowledge and from recognizing knowledge in marginally situated knowers you know so which I mean and the epistemic arrogance around these things is dangerous right oh you know as a white person well I don't experience racism so I there it must not exist right I I know it doesn't exist but we can think about this idea that Bernstein is giving us this um this maybe Kind of fact about our psychology that we're more likely to believe claims from people, quote unquote, like us. um, That it's you know that's one reason that privileged people who want to act in solidarity must take it upon themselves to educate themselves and other members of the privileged group about about oppression. Uh, And there are other reasons we can think. I'm sure there are other reasons we can give for why um, the people doing the oppression should be engaged in learning about how that happens and thinking about how not to make that happen right there there are other reasons we could give for why the people who um, are involved in maintaining it should be also involved in dismantling it but this is this is um, one additional reason too So Bernstein has connected epistemic exploitation to this first um, idea from Fricker, a type of epistemic injustice, the testimonial injustice. And now she's connecting it to this second type, which is a hermeneutical injustice, which is one that we talked about in the lectures from last week about um, how hermeneutical injustice is when the concepts don't exist to describe and communicate and make sense of your experiences because those experiences are not ones that the knowledge makers have. which are So from epistemic exploitation we get two kinds of hermeneutical injustice. The first is one that we've talked about, the failure of creation so there's just there's just no concept to share this experience and it makes it makes the demand to engage in this unpaid labor to enlighten the privileged person that much harder because there's no shared interpretive resources available there's no shorthand that that has that makes sense to the privileged person that's been like you know floating around in the in the cultural kind of ethos they've experienced you know, read it in a few, um, you know, progressive newspapers, or seen it on Twitter or Instagram, right? It's just not in this kind of shared uh, space for interpreting experiences. But the second one is a new kind, which is um, contributory injustice. And this is a failure of circulation. So this is where those concepts have been developed. Those conceptual resources exist but they haven't been taken up by the dominant kind of culture. So they've been, um, someone has created them, they've been created. It's not that they haven't been created. It's not that they don't exist at all, which is the first one, the failure of creation. But this one is a failure of circulation. So someone has done the work or a group of people have done the work to create some concept, but it's just not being used and we can think about some of the things that we talked about last time about the different kinds of ignorance so you know there might be different reasons why it's not being used maybe it's just not a lot of people know about it yet and it just hasn't like it hasn't been spread yet but maybe also there's kind of an active resistance to it and this is the active resistance is something we talked about last week the willful hermene hermeneutical ignorance so dominantly situated persons may erase or deny the existence of this relevant hermeneutical or conceptual resource and the last section of the Berenstein paper talks about epistemic exploitation as epistemic oppression so epistemic oppression is defined in this paper using uh, Christy Dodson's uh, definition which is the next paper we'll be reading this week Epistemic oppression is persistent and unwarranted infringement on the ability to utilize pervasively shared epistemic resources that hinders one's contribution to knowledge production. So this is um, oppression that's specifically knowledge related. So we can think about the story from um, last week's lecture about about the way that Inuit oral history and Inuit knowledge was just ignored so it so how is in what ways epistemic exploitation epistemic oppression and Berenstein um, talks about Charles Mills his notion of white ignorance which is a um, this idea that white supremacy demands a demands a misunderstanding, misrepresentation, evasion, and self-deceptions on matters of race. So white supremacy is based on a, on a lie that white people are better than. And in order to keep up that lie, which is just um, which is shown to be false at, at every turn, this ignorance takes this t- this ignorance takes work. This ignorance requires, um, as Mills puts it, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, evasion, self deception. So Berenstein writes that whites must maintain a coherent narrative of racism. For example, being solely located in the past, in the face even in the face of omnipresent evidence to the contrary. So, this epistemic exploitation is exa- is an example of epistemic oppression because it involves this these kind of lies, right? One example of a lie that we can ima- that we can imagine, given what Berenstein has already talked about and um, this idea of and her, and her idea of epistemic pe- of this assumption of epistemic peers, right? This is a lie. This is a lie that that people are going to be equally positioned to to know about things like racism and sexism and other other types of oppressions that that we're epistemic peers. This that is not true. And Berenstein's pointing out that even though it's not true, it's uh, seems to be an assumption in a lot of these and how a lot of these epistemically exploitative conversations go. So at the end of the article, Berenstain writes that, you know, in these situations, the dominantly situated are feigning engagement with the marginalized, but actually refusing to listen to them. So I think, you know, you can think of um, the way some people travel, I think is a good example of this. So, you know, sometime maybe you've had a conversation with a friend or someone who just recently traveled somewhere like South America or Southeast Asia and they have come back with all of their stereotypes affirmed and it doesn't seem like any of their experiences really kind of challenged those things you know it's like oh it was exactly what I thought it was so backwards and everybody's so you know it's all these ancient customs or something and what's I think especially can be especially problematic about these things is you know the traveling has gives this person this kind of sense that oh well they know they know in a different way they went they saw for themselves but really because that experience was um you know curated in so many ways and they still were experiencing whatever they're experiencing through themselves through their own eyes through their own preconceptions through their own biases that they come home just with these things affirmed and we can think tie that back to the beginning point of berenstein's that i really think is so great about how these conversations can masquerade as necessary and even epistemically virtuous forms of intellectual engagement so one of the the risky things about these Conversations, I mean, and, you know, add in the part that these conversations are kind of can be kind of forced or coercive in some way, right? Um, Amina either has to respond to Ben and defend herself and explain how this experience fits into a, a pattern she's experienced over her whole life of, you know, white people claiming her body in all these ways um but you know if ben is in this conversation not genuinely openly which you know i think is a really hard thing to do and um and one and something that takes you know effort and work and is um for lots of reasons kind of small potato work compared to um the work that Amina is being asked to do but if what's really happening is this epistemic exploitation and then really not op- not not listening in a way that there's ever going to be change right it's just going to lead to this default skepticism kind of like you know almost automatically there's this risk that you know Ben leaves feeling oh you know I've I've done the the virtuous thing I in, engaged intellectually with Amina about racism but I came out the victor Amina is just so angry it's hard to discuss things with her so I think the end of this article really ties nicely with one of the earlier points about the different way the different ways that these conversations can masquerade as being you know, types of conversations that they're not. And um, we'll finish there for the day and I'll see you for our next lecture soon. Okay, bye.